What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheen, joined as always by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how's it going, man? It's going well, man. Things are things are swell, heating up out here in the streets and in the content mines. Good time. Speaking of heating up, uh, I've been following i've been following the people following f1 on twitter and so i just wanted to check in with you because i think there was a race this weekend i think yes. i saw that red bull got the top two spots followed by mercedes in the three yeah. four that's correct yes fill me in how's the season going azerbaijan grand prix in baku street circuit yeah uh, red bull one two clearly the best team this week most disappointingly ferrari both of their runners uh, DNF'd due to uh, car failures, which is uh, unacceptable for the team that's trying to challenge Red Bull for the championship, and at one point was leading both championships before they completely squandered everything away due to strategic errors and uh, issues such as last week. So very disappointing to see uh, Red Bull in such a dominant, shea, dominant form, but uh, the season's not over yet. There's still 20 18 races left 17 races left it's like we're like a third of the way in not even so um easy been good so far though um but yeah uh, ferrari just doing what they do historically which is fumble the fucking bag constantly and just not win when they have a really good chance to well uh, i'm excited to watch uh drive to survive in uh like a year about this so looking forward to that appreciate the update though i do like following it Mostly just to see like people being like, "What a what a fucking disgrace Ferrari is." It was really funny seeing people blast them on Twitter this week. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking about uh, an album, some TV shows, and a movie today. We're going to start with some news first. So hit that subscribe button if you're listening on YouTube.com/slash/NostalgiaPod, or you can go to either one of our Twitters or all three of our Twitters at the the Pod Twitter at NostalgiaPod, Dave's Twitter at Martin Swagger, mine Sheeny World Peace. And we have our link tree in there to listen to the podcast on whatever platform you prefer to, so check that out. But Dave, we're going to start with a uh, news story that kind of dropped, a speculative news story, I guess I'll say, Hmm. that was proposing that Netflix may be interested in buying Roku. It it seems like reports since this initial one came out seems like it's probably not going to happen. But what would be the appeal to Netflix to purchase a company like Roku? Yeah, it's really interesting. So this this came up as you said about almost a week ago when Roku themselves prevented or closed the trading window for staff to sell vested shares, prompting the stock price jump and all the speculation. And I think the reason people jumped to Netflix is because there are a lot of reasons it makes sense. And this is not like an out of the blue, out of nowhere, brand new idea. This has been thrown out there before. And I think what's really interesting is you have to really think about what kind of business Roku is. We don't we, we don't talk about Roku because like we usually focus on what these companies make originally. And Roku does mm-hmm. that, but at a very small scale. But Roku is so much bigger than just being a middleman for uh, streaming as the set top did the dominant set top box on the market and against all odds they seem to be the dominant option despite amazon and apple and google being their main competitors but that is the case you know they're the dominant uh smart tv os as well but their business is based on services that's where they make all their money mm-hmm. they make like twice as much money on their 
their their services and their ad, ad ad revenue as they do from their actual hardware sales. So they're like they're not just a, a company that sells you something in Best Buy, you know. And I think the reason it makes sense is interesting for Netflix anyway. Is Netflix recently announced that they're going to go into the ad game for the first time? Right. Something that was so against what Netflix has been about this whole time, obviously prompted by their first uh, quarter of stagnant growth ever and uh, the, the stock price absolutely tanking recently, right? And doing ad, ads at scale is not something that you can just like start and just start doing successfully. So I, I think the big, one of the biggest appeals of, of them perhaps buying Roku is that they could really like get into the ad game in a major way by just kind of acquiring an ad advertising operation. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about, right? Because um, a Wells Fargo report came out that said that it would be ch- cheaper if they did this, but it would still be pretty expensive uh, to basically build out everything you would need to work ads into these platforms. And so uh, I think it I think it identified they would be like at least fourteen percent of the operating budget of Netflix to be um, building in all of this, all the necessary things for advertisement and sustaining it. So it's it's a big undertaking either way. So I get the appeal to Netflix of going for it. Yeah, I was surprised to see this report initially. I guess I just had never thought about it. And you know, the more you dig into it, the more you you see as you kind of laid out that Roku is just massive. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like almost like so ingrained, I think, into just like how we think about streaming that you don't actually think about how big it is. It was projected that in order to buy Roku, it would take probably around 17 billion dollars, which I was just kind of blown away by. I didn't even rec- realize that Roku was that big. And it goes back to what you talked about, the the ad base and where they get the ads from. They they run ads in so many different ways they get it from so many different sources on so many different platforms that they just are are massive and it was pretty pretty staggering it like i said it seems like it's dead but do you do you think there might be like some some fire here where there's been just a tiny bit of smoke yeah well it's interesting because even though it's a, it's expensive roku's a multi-billion dollar company as you said it's not as expensive as it was like a year ago when i think it was comcast was sniffing around because Roku's tank has also uh, incredible dropped uh, tremendously, so I think their their evaluation is evaluation is now around thirteen billion. So what you said, them going over the top of that for that position makes sense. Uh, but I mean, just to speak to the, their their true size, there's like sixty over sixty million active Roku users, and it's like at the end of the day, they are a middleman, but they're such a dominant middleman that they can dominate ads, and specifically, they have ten percent of Peacock's ad inventory, meaning that the ads that Peacock puts on all their stuff on their ad tiers, 10% of those ads, the money goes to Roku. That's crazy. And, and Peacock, uh, uh, NBC Universal, they had to play ball to that degree to get Roku to put them on Peacock on their service, on their, on, on Roku. So that, that just speaks to like how, how a strong position I think they're really in. And even if Amazon Fire TV is doing pretty well, like if 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 Netflix picked up Roku, they would get this huge ad, ad, ad operation. It'd also get a lot of data. You know, I think that's another interesting thing. Is would would the other streaming services be super happy about Roku being owned by Netflix? 
the other other side though, they probably wouldn't have much of a choice. They're not going to pull themselves off just like no streaming service pulled themselves off of Apple TVs or Amazon Fires before. So it, it it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I think the the big hindrance, right, would be if, if Netflix acquired Roku, what happens with all these partnerships where, you know, there's, there's Amazon Prime and HBO and Apple TV, like you laid out, that are on these streaming platforms. Now they're supporting a platform that is providing to their competitors. It seems a bit messy, I guess. And I, I don't know what the, I don't know how that would work out necessarily. So I think that would probably be the biggest hindrance to me, but I... I would be very interested to see how this plays out. I don't think this is the last we'll hear of it. Um, I think Netflix is going to continue to explore ways to um, build out their their company, obviously, and try to get some some more juice behind them as they, they've had this big fall in stock price. So I'm sure we'll be talking about it. Do you have any last thoughts on the matter, though? Yeah, on the, one other piece would be this would be the first time that Netflix would have like a secondary business model of any real substance, which would be, of course, the Roku hardware being sold in stores and online. Uh, it's not as strong as Roku's ads, of course, but that would actually still be like a secondary income stream, which would be like the first time Netflix ever had one of those, because again, they haven't had an interest to this point. So yeah, like you said, definitely a story that I'm sure will get talked about uh, more moving forward, and I'm sure Roku in general acquisition will probably be a topic that will continue. All right, well, we're going to uh, stay tuned as we hear more about this as it comes along, but let's move forward to a new album that just dropped, Horse Girl, Versions of Modern Performance. Horse Girl, a relatively new band, you know, forming 2019, really uh, breaking through over the last couple of years with a couple of EPs, and this this initial album I thought was a really impressive first album. For this band, uh, an all-female band, um, I think a lot of, uh, I think we've been talking a lot about indie rock, female-led groups <laughs> and and female singers and songwriters, and so I, there's a tendency sometimes when these sorts of groups come about to kind of feel like ah you know another female-led indie group. Did this band, did Horse Girl, break through from that that pack mm. for you in any way? Yeah, that's a great question because, as you said, women run indie rock. It's just a fact. And Horse, Horse Girl, this is their first release debut album on Matador Records, a record label that is home to many of the largest faces, female uh, faces in modern day indie rock. So it makes sense that that's where your mind goes. But yeah, I think it's they're interesting because their influences are 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 evident, but they're much more uh, in the past and. I think different than a lot of the other female faces we talk about in indie rock these days. This uh, this trio though, Nora Chang, Penelope Lovestein, and Gigi Reese, they're all they're, they're super young. They're all eighteen or nineteen. Mm -hmm. They're all college freshmen slash I think well one of them's a high school senior. Like they're very young, but they're super into like eighties and nineties uh, indie and punk and yeah. stuff. And it's uh, it's pretty cool to see. A new, a new act like such as this, because again, like that, the EP from 2020 was only three songs, so they haven't put out a lot of music yet because they're so young. But it's so cool to see uh, such obvious and, and loving homage to some stuff of the past. I think a lot of the reviews have talked about uh, Pavement as an obvious yeah. uh, influence, and, and the band themselves have talked about their love of the band. So that I guess that makes plenty of sense. But yeah, no, I think I thought it was a 
pretty interesting to hear something so uh, pretty pretty fully forward. I think the word I've been seeing thrown around a lot is confident, a confident debut from a new band. Yeah, I think confident is a good word for it. It fully forms another good way to describe it. It, it I think what really stood out to me with, with their sound was there was a lot of similarity, you know, from song to song. Uh, some of the, the drum beats and, and tempos are, are very similar or, and, and I think definitely there's variations of the guitar sound, but there's, uh, like you said, I think a very distinctive homage to that 90s, like washed out punk indie rock, which was obviously so popular. Smashing Pumpkins was a band that kind of came to mind at, at times listening to them. But uh, the ability to still make songs that really stood out and, and, and felt different, even with the uh the same kind of like dna running through them um from song to song i thought was a, a really good sign for them because i think as they obviously progress as a band and become a little bit more experimental in their next couple of albums if if we get those which i'm hoping we do uh I, it's it's going to be um really cool to see them kind of keep the ability to like have a central sound but just kind of flourish out so it almost yeah. feels like you're watching like like something bloom right and the bloom is just starting and it's still kind of like compact and we're just excited to see where they go and i think the album really starts off right from the rip with some some great songs i think those first three anti-glory beautiful song and live and ski were probably three of the highlights for me on this and there's a couple down um, in the second half that I really liked as well. But uh, I think Anti-Glory, just the, those drums catch you right away, right? Yeah. They're, they're just kind of whirring around you. The guitar comes in and it feels very like, you know, you have the like kind of lackadaisical vocals all throughout this that kind of fall into the music in some way. But it just feels very cool <laughs> in, in a sense. And then you get the beautiful song. And that has like that more washed out feel, but by the end, the way it kind of crescendos with like just like the symbols just ripping through it, and then her vo her vocals kind of push up a little bit, push up a little bit above it. I think it's just a really, really well crafted song, and that it really impressive first start to the album. Yeah, I like the Antic Glory a lot as well. Uh, I thought a uh, dirtbag transformation, uh -huh. still dirty was pretty cool because the guitar line on that's like much more like pop rock almost yeah. just uh just a different vibe from what you'd heard to that point I thought that one was pretty cool and like normally like this is not like my my cup of tea this kind of more uh lackadaisical vocals more mm -hmm. penchant to like washed out production but i think just the way the way it's all kind of packaged together i still still enjoyed it uh, i also really liked at the end there billy which is a single from several months yeah. ago that one, I mean, the drums are really evident on that one. And then it's just kind of like a, a jam, honestly. That that song, that one was really nice. Yeah, I, I really like those last two songs. Uh, Homage to Birdinoculars, which <laughs> they have some really funny names on here. They have a song called The Fall of Horse Girl, which is just uh, instrumental, but I just thought that was really funny. And then uh, The Guitar is Dead 3, um, which I thought was also pretty funny, especially because, mm -hmm. you know, it's all piano. And then the next two songs have like this pretty distinctive guitar line in it um but yeah i agree what i really liked about those last two what stood out to me was the way that they use the uh the vocalist you know that that voice that kind of falls into the music in a sense with some talking parts underneath it just to kind of like it, it kind of like almost like raises the vocals 
above each other but also like together in a sense and it, it gives that like sly cool feeling that i think they're going for on this and um you know they have a music video for uh i believe it's uh burden uh, no sorry dirtbag transformation where it's just like it, it looks like they just shot it themselves right it's like uh them in like this like dressed up like they're playing dress up at their mom's house almost and then like doing like a talent show and it just kind of is like this handheld going back and forth very shaky thing and it, it looks really like indie and cool and so i really appreciate that like throwback feel that they have to a lot of this it, it really was like welcoming like you said to hear something like this yeah, one last note too. Uh, I was not aware of this at all, but evidently Horse Girl is the most high profile of a burgeoning uh, indie rock scene, specifically in Chicago, where Horse Girl is from. And just kind of reminds me of the post-punk scene over in England that we've talked about a lot recently with Black Midi and Squid and Black Country New Road. Just cool to see these kind of like hot spots of subgenres popping up uh, in rock music, we're so used to this in hip hop, but to actually see it in rock these days is really cool too. Great, great point. We'll be adding uh, a song or two by them to our nostalgia best of 2022. So check that out. Let's move on to television, though, Dave. Where I know you were clamoring for it. I know, I know that you couldn't wait to be in the live action world of Miss Marvel one of your favorite superheroes and Disney plus finally dropped the first episode this past Wednesday. Uh, what'd you think of this first episode, Dave? Miss Marvel, not a character. I think really all joking aside, either, either you or I has really engaged with much if I'm right. No. Yeah. Not, not too much. I mean, the thing is Miss Marvel is a very new character, less than 10 years old in the comics. So the popularity of the character, I think, kind of speaks for itself because it's risen to such a high profile so quickly. Uh, the lead character in the uh, Square Enix Avengers game from 2020, you know, kind of reminiscent of like Harley Quinn on DC, where like a new character has become such a big, basically new A-lister for them. That's what they want Miss Marvel to be on the screen. And, you know, getting, what is this, the sixth Marvel MCU Disney Plus series? It's like, okay, we've seen a bunch of these. We've talked about the ups and the downs. There's certainly been both. Got a new one. You know, I think for me, the trailer, I was like, hmm, is this a show for kids? Hmm. You know what? Maybe not. You know, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I think the first episode of the six episode ser series, I think the first episode kind of surprised me in terms of the strength of its tone, the strength of its casting and its visuals, which is very uncommon for Marvel, honestly. And left me feeling pretty good i think honestly the the one question mark is when the show has to be a marvel show in the future how will that go because all the non-marvel-y stuff i actually thought was pretty strong definitely exceeded my expectations yeah i think i think that's the i think that's the part that really stood out to me um and i i have to say i don't think i really loved this uh ya stuff not really my bag um so um i i don't know if like this is a show I'm going to really be as into as some of the other shows, but the things I really liked were the exploration of her identity and um, of her family's culture and what it means to be a Pakistani American um, living in Jersey city. Um, I thought all of that stuff was really great. I thought 
the stuff with her family and, and like uh, their their relationships more so. Um, her relationship with her dad, her relationship with her brother, with her mom, the dynamics at play, cultural dynamics, um, gender dynamics, all of that were really, really well done. I, I really loved that stuff. The stuff I, I, I think I found hard to sit with and... <laughs> Or maybe not hard to with her. I just didn't really enjoy. I guess I'll say, uh, and maybe this is a symptom of watching the boys simultaneously while watching this. Is when they go to like the Avengers convention, uh, Marvel convention, whatever it is. That was when I was like, you know what? I, I might just be like over Marvel right now. It's so like, it's so tuned in a certain way that just feels worn down to me, and think like a little boring especially when you're watching something like the boys that is so critical and feels so like thought-provoking and marvel feels like i'm just supposed to like giggle along and be like oh there's captain america's butt cheeks again like you know like i don't right. know right well i think that's a good point because i've been saying this for a while now the, the world of the mcu itself is not cool and it has never been you know like just like the general world it's not the world you want to be in because like there's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. So like when you see all all these all these civilians all hyped about the Avengers that they love, the real life heroes, as, as they would be in the universe, it's like you know what like I don't really care, you know, I, I, and I never have. It's mm-hmm. I think that's a it's a major weakness of the MCU where it's like you know here we are again in fake New York City, you know, <laughs> shot in Atlanta like usual, and it's like. There's just like nothing there. Like the the world of her culture in her little neighborhood in Jersey City, that felt much more alive and real. Yeah. And everything else is just like, can we just get back to the other stuff? Because that would be honestly a very compelling coming of age story. And uh, there's been a lot of comparisons critically to like Ben, like Beckham, very similar uh, mm. themes there, you know. Um, and I think we definitely have a lot of uh, talent at at the the head here because uh, you have. Adil and Bilal directing this pilot, directing the finale. Those are the guys that directed uh, Bad Boys for Life. They directed the upcoming DC Batgirl movie. You have them. You have Bishop Ali as the showrunner. A lot of clear intention, intentionality and thoughtfulness about Kamala's home life and how she thinks about things in the world. But like how she thinks about things in the world doesn't actually have anything to do with the MCU world. So how, how, how it goes with Kamala, like getting her Miss Marvel powers, which were slightly tweaked from what she has in the comics. I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, like, cause at the end of the day, this is probably just a series that sets Miss Marvel up to show up in the Marvel's Captain Marvel two, you know, in the mood, the movie. So we know it probably won't be that consequential. It's just kind of a coming of age origin story, and I just think Marvel kind of needs to show show the work again and like make make you care about its greater world building. Because I just don't think they're very successful at it, at least on the TV front right now. The people involved with this, and they they I have to give them a lot of credit. They have gotten a lot of people who um, can relate to the background and have lived the background. And, you know, the fourth episode is. Um, Directed by Charmaine Obeid Chinoy, who has won uh, Academy Awards and Emmy Awards, and specifically for her work um, in highlighting the um, 
inequalities um, with women and within the Pakistani Canadian culture. So I assume that there's going, she's probably going to be exploring some of the the family dynamics there and, and um, cultural dynamics as well. Um, you mentioned a deal in Bilal. I think even um, Bishake Ali is someone who definitely is on the rise, and I think this is a great opportunity for her. I, I think it's, um, I think there's a lot of talent here. I just, I think like you said. It's hard to, it's hard to totally and fully explore and examine these ideas when they're still kind of held to these, uh, these boundaries or these expectations of a specific Marvel vision. And um, I think we've gotten some attempts to try to break that mold. Um, and those are the shows that typically work or that we've liked more. Loki. Uh, first seven to eight episodes of WandaVision. If this show can maybe stay grounded, you know, obviously there's going to be some exploration of Kamala Khan's past and these, you know, the powers that she gets from wearing the bracelets or um, I think they were bracelets, right? Or some sort of... Yeah, some, 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 some kind of bracelet wrist. from her grandmother or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there's obviously going to be that aspect, but if it can still stay about her relationship with her family and what it means to be Pakistani America. I think there's a lot of potential for this show to rise above something like Hawkeye <laughs> um, right. or Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But if it really has to swerve more into that Marvel lane, I think we're going to kind of be lumping it in as, uh, you know, another, another entry that just fell short. Right. Potential. Yeah. To Marvel's credit, I'll, I will say, I thought Aman Vellani was really great as Kamala mm-hmm. Khan is immediately charismatic and winning and they definitely did a great job there. So um, at least she'll probably end up being a, a future anchor for the MCU as it feels like. Oh yeah. All, all these shows seem to be setting up of course with like Kate Bishop and Hawkeye similarly. So uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's only so much to say about a lot of these Marvel shows lately, you know, Moon Knight, the best thing about Moon Knight was that it was unconnected. It just, ultimately didn't really have the story needed to take full advantage so miss marvel maybe it's only so connected you know we'll see you know um then again maybe uh we'll see brie larson at the end of the series and it's super connected who knows <laughs> yeah you know i, I do want to shout out a couple of, of scenes that i think really stood out to me I, I guess one in particular but most of the stuff within their house i thought was really really great whether it's them having dinner together, her talking to her parents and asking to go to uh, you know, AvengerCon. But I really loved the scene where her parents allow her, you know, tell her you can go, but your father has to come with you. And he bursts in as the Hulk on Kapoor. It's just, he's so funny in that moment, you know, bursting in all painted up in green. And then uh, I, I think shows uh some really good chops because it's heartbreaking when she's like no i don't i don't want to go as i don't want to go as this like with you guys like it it really made me feel sad so i thought that was really really effective i also liked i also liked a lot of the scenes um in the school between um kamala and bruno um Mm -hmm. you know when they're kind of like plotting and stuff i think that's pretty fun and like you said running around jersey city there's some fun stuff there as well like when they run to the bus the bus and she has to leave her bike behind and stuff. I, I thought that was like fun to see them traveling about, but a lot of the other stuff just didn't fully hit for me. So yeah. we'll see that yeah. the, the show could go in two directions. It feels like. 
for sure. You know, I think visually, the first episode did a really cool job of putting like the animations, like her drawings, like in 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 the world, like on the backgrounds and stuff. So I'm curious yeah. to see if if that kind of visual flair that's pretty unique per Marvel standards. I want to see if that continues in the subsequent episodes. We'll see. But uh, yeah, uh, Marvel's back because it really never goes anywhere. <laughs> uh, let's move forward to some uh, to a show that's going somewhere. And that specific place is space. And that's for all mankind. Season three dropping this past week on Apple Plus. Dave, we haven't talked about For All Mankind before. I caught up on it last year, um, or early into this year, I should say, like January-ish. And I know that you caught up just recently for the season three premiere. And I just kind of wanted to ask, uh, what was your initial thoughts going into it? And what was your overall experience in catching up for the season three premiere? Yeah, I mean, I was aware of the show. Of course, one of the launch series for apple tv plus towards the end of 2019 and you know i uh heard there was you know a bit of praise but faint praise perhaps for that first season at least when it came out due to its uh uh, length and uh kind of slow getting out of the gate but still a lot to like about it as a historical or alternate history uh series about the escalation of space race you know it's very appealing on its face so I, I had I had still kind of like been keeping my eye on the show. And then when For All Mankind season two came out last year, the hype was immediately increased due to people saying the show was just better than the, when the finale to season two came out. There was this Hosanna's being sung about how, how epic it was, you know, and uh, I think that that's all true. It's all pretty spot on. The show really, uh, I, th- I think it's still appealing and immediately grabbed me in season one, but then clearly took a step up with season two and then the finale was really gripping and like I knew it was to expect something expect a lot going in but I wasn't expecting it to truly be like Red Dawn meets Apollo 13 which is basically <laughs> what it is then the yeah. second half it, it, it's pretty awesome and I like a lot of the cast I like how uh, big in scope the show is advancing in time tremendously it's really fun to see the alternate history butterfly effect mm-hmm. of things that happen in this world that didn't happen that way in real life, things that did still happen the same way, really cool. Um, and it's really fun if you like, you know a lot about the history of NASA and the space space and stuff like that. And I'm actually just really happy that we have a space series that's really uh, hit in, in this manner. And I would not be surprised if Apple really pushes for Emmys this time around with season three, because there's been a lot of space shows recently that didn't really last. You know, you think of the first with Sean Penn and Away on Netflix and uh, the Right Stuff series they did on Disney Plus. None of those really got too much love. And The Expanse, which Amazon saved from sci-fi, I guess is probably the best comp to this show, but that's always kind of been like a sleeper cult hit as far as these go. But for all mankind, it's like, it's kind of a lot of things at once. It's like the workplace drama, a science fiction show has these big set pieces, amazing effects like for TV it really is the whole package. So I'm really happy I got on board and I'm really looking forward to watching the rest of the season three because we've really got it going. You know, we went from getting on the moon to women in space to the moon base to now we're going to fucking Mars, bro, in the 90s. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, the end of um, season two, that that finale, you get to the end of it, it cuts to the credits and it shows them like on the moon in like 91 with 
Nirvana playing and like looking towards Mars and it's just like, oh, let's fucking go. I was so pumped for the season three. I really loved both seasons, honestly, but I agree. I think the second half of season two is just like absolute dynamite. Um, and the the overall concept alone is just really brilliant. You know, like what if Russia beat us to the space and how that would totally like alter all these different um, perspectives and government uh, policies and visions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really like a just brilliant. And I think the cast has, has all been really, really strong. Obviously I don't think every storyline grabs me. Um, and um, I think there's some things I want to see more of and some that I'm like, Oh, we can, I- I've had enough of that. That's fine. But um, yeah, going into season three after that finale and such a time jump i was like huh i'm wondering what it is that made them want to jump forward this much and obviously i think it's the development of some sort of um sustainable way to like make it to mars and and go there because i think they're trying to be realistic about like how quickly technology would be able to develop and and move yeah um but i think also putting some of these other some of these main characters into older stages of their life to then allow space for younger characters to like move in because i think they're probably thinking we don't we're not going to have joel kinnaman for seven seasons of this you know we're not going to have yeah he's going to move on and do some other stuff so we got to kind of build it forward that's exactly right the thing about joel kinnaman's character ed baldwin is they make a point. Ed Baldwin, he was a Korean War veteran. Well, the Korean War was in the 50s, the last time I checked. They didn't tell us it happened in any other different time. So, mm-hmm. Ed is, like, in his 60s now. Does Joel mm-hmm. Kinnaman look that? Of course not. I can get by that. No big deal. But, yeah. like, Ed Baldwin's, like, getting up there to be an a, a astronaut still, you know? So, it presents, though, great opportunity, as you said, for Kelly and Aleda and 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 uh uh gordo's son like to have them kind of take the next step as the younger characters because the show does a really good job of paying things off and building like things up and that was 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 so great about really honestly both season finales both end of both seasons is they tie threads uh together really well and think things things come together and, and it's satisfying and now we're to the point where the show in in its story has progressed 25 years from the start of season one. So now it all makes plausible sense that these newer characters are in a position to take the lead of the series down the line. But it, it also makes logical sense in real life, you know, because like, again, like Joel Kinnaman probably is kind of playing out the string at this point on For All Mankind, as much as I love to see him. So I think the potential of the series moving forward is also very tantalizing and, uh, I think you just have really competent people at the helm, too. Obviously, Apple will spare no expense when it comes to making the show look great. But also, you have Ronald Moore as one of the creators and the guy running the show here. Of course, a veteran from Star Trek and also the basically the head of the Battlestar Galactica remake and Outlander. Like He's a very successful TV creator. So, I mean, the future of the show, who knows how science fiction they truly get. You know, in a sense, it is science yeah. fiction that we're going to mars in in the early to mid 90s um i think i was actually reading into it i mean if we were to go to mars right now it would still take us like nearly two years let alone having the technology to actually like be there uh (laughs) physically there and everything so 
uh, just really can't wait to see what's next because there's a lot of other interesting ideas being thrown out there with season three. You have uh, uh, Edie uh, Gaethje's character coming up as a dev ISO, the head of this private space company, Helios. Very obvious parallel to Elon Musk with SpaceX and Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin and just the privatization of space, something we're happening, seeing right now in the collaboration between private space companies and NASA and the government. Realistic thing. Now we're going to see it dramatized on this show, too. Again, sounds great. Yeah, uh, I'm really interested to see where they go with that. Um, I think from the first episode, I, I think they did a lot of ground playing while still having mm-hmm. a really, really captivating premiere. Obviously, I think the setup of you know uh, Karen has this uh, space hotel, the first of yeah. its kind, is throwing this wedding or allowing Danny to throw his wedding there, um, and something goes wrong, and they're you know not these astronauts who have been so decorated and become so famous and, and are lauded as American heroes aren't able to stop it. You know, it's up to Danny as this, the younger person who's, you know, kind of like the up and comer within uh, NASA to save the day. And I thought that was really interesting. And some of the, obviously the dynamics between Danny and Karen, Ugh. which was a storyline that I was like, okay, we, we can move on from this in season two, but like, Apparently, it's not going to go away from what uh, advanced reviews have told us, which I feel like is a major mistake, because that was by far the worst subplot of season two. A hundred percent agree. But uh, yeah, seems like it's going to kind of be there. Um, But I thought I thought some of that stuff was like kind of interesting. I really, really liked um, seeing Margo uh, and and the stuff with her, uh, specifically with the Russian guy. I think it was... Sir, probably, I'm right. gonna guess his name was Sergey. I can't remember, yeah. but just like the how they're trying to work her, man. It's like the Americans. Yeah, it, exactly. And then also, we didn't get to see much of this, but Ellen, you know, running for president uh, yeah. in '96 against Bill Clinton is uh, very, very interesting to me, and I, <laughs> I'm interested to see how they kind of pull this all together. Um, I, I don't know how much we're actually going to see of her, like interacting with bill clinton you know most of the time the interactions with presidents on this have just been over the phone they'll show a a video of the president so i don't know what that's gonna look like but definitely interesting i think that's the like the next level for this show right i think obviously keeping the um actual like space interactions and as they're you know kind of we're moving towards like actual war in space um i think there's um going to be a lot of action in that sense but these older characters who do choose to stay on i don't think we'll probably get kinnaman past the season i'd be surprised um but i think a couple of them um have a shot to remain obviously ren schmidt as Margot, sonia walger as molly although maybe her health effects won't allow her to i don't know mm-hmm. um i think there's some some potential to see them kind of move into these more like political spheres and you know like you said it's it has all these different kind of things like shows going on all at once i think moving into a more political type drama could be an interesting direction for the show to go as well yeah totally because i think it does a great job early on of in the past seasons of being a really good like workplace show administrative show i mean 
in the beginning, it's very similar to like the right stuff kind of stuff, you know, early uh, or early space race days, you know, post Mercury and Gemini and stuff. And I think the way they've handled the Ellen character has been really awesome. Uh, and seeing her move into politics as a Republican, you know, and like uh, how how that's going to go is very appealing. Um, apparently, we're going to see some kind of parallel to Monica Lewinsky. I'm not sure if it's exactly that or it's on her side of things. I don't really know, but. I think Jodie Balfour is a really awesome as Ellen, and I think she's going to really blow up because she's also going to be in Ted Lasso season thir- three later this year. So I think yeah. she's uh, clearly just going to explode because she's really captivating on For All Mankind. Totally. Totally. Yeah, I mean, was there anything else from this first episode that like stood out to you that you really liked or that you're interested in for this season? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I mean, I think just... It, nothing nothing feels out of sync like it's brand new for this show like yes we're gonna see like private space tourism and private space companies but like that all still thematically makes sense in what's come before with for all mankind so i'm curious to see exactly like how much of a bigger role we see for people like kelly and Aleda and stuff because you still have daniel Poole, you still have ed baldwin you still have karen you know and i think the karen character's kind of been tough throughout the series because she was the one with the least agency as just the wife of the astronaut you know and then they've, they've tried to do their best i think that putting her right now in a spot where she's kind of at the head of private space work in some fashion definitely a more interesting place for her character but i really don't want to see the subplots with danny again just because the show didn't seem to want to integrate that like thematically uh, like an Oedipus uh, level, you know, which it, it, it didn't actually seem to tackle what kind of relationship that really was. So therefore, I'd rather just not see it at all. Yeah. Uh, but then again, this show crams in a lot of different subplots with a lot of different characters. And even if not everything hits, I think that's still okay because this is still a show that really likes to build up to something taking from all its disparate parts. So not everything works. I think it, it doesn't really hurt the show because it's an ongoing series. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of different things to be looking forward to. I think one in particular, like one storyline I'm, I'm interested to see develop is what goes on with Danny's brother. Um, you know, he kind of has that like unhinged, uh, pretty yeah. uh, critical look at NASA from a pers- you know, perspective of some... Yeah, exactly. And um, I think that there's potential for him to uh, really like propel himself into a more central role in this season and provide a perspective that we don't get a ton of. You know, I think a lot of the perspective that we're given of how the general public sees this is like this is an essential part of culture and and of life within. you know, this fictionalized uh, reality. And I think having someone who's like, actually, this kind of fucking sucks and I hate it. It's like, would be an interesting way because I can't imagine every single person feels like space is the direction that uh, these two countries should be going. So, yeah, definitely be interesting. On the other hand, this is a world that already invented nuclear fusion to a degree that climate change is going down. It's like, you know what? Doesn't sound too bad over there, even if Soviet no, Union is still going strong, you know. You know, well, then again, it's not yeah. all bad. <laughs> yeah, I know that that was the part of the alternate reality, um, like news dump at the beginning that I was like most jealous of. I was like, God damn! Like, imagine 
Imagine. Uh, imagine. Anyways, we'll be talking about For All of Mankind as it comes. Uh, obviously, I think a show that uh, we both really love and are looking forward to talking more about. Let's move on to Barry, another show that we both love and look forward to talking about. And Barry season three just wrapped up. And man, I think like where I want to start with this is, is there any show that even comes close to doing what Barry does? It feels like it's just such in its own lane right now, right? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it, it it's definitely shed the dark comedy label. I mean, it, this was such a bleak season, such a dark, <laughs> yeah. uh, tough hang season, you know? But at the same time, it still felt like another the third season of Barry because I think those first two seasons did a really good job of just sucking you into these characters' orbits in a in a unique way. And even if I don't know if I enjoyed my time in the world as much this time around because it was so much darker, but it's still yeah, you still can't help but be impressed by like the level of storytelling. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, the, this season, um, it, like you said, it really shifted from, I think, being a comedy in general. I mean, there's still some moments that are funny, but it's really just a, a exploration, like a character exploration at this point. And um, I think the thing I was most impressed by was not only how this show I think looks and feels singular, like the way that they choose to um, shoot and uh, basically just let you be in these action scenes. You know, I think the scene from episode six on the, the dirt bike is one that comes to mind, but also like um, Sally in the last episode, you know, beating the guy to death. Um, even just like in the final scene, Barry kind of walking through the house like you're just kind of like in these moments there's not music kind of guiding how you're supposed to feel there's not um other cues that are really like there to trick you and or bring up an emotional response you're just kind of in these moments as the with the characters as they're experiencing which which feels very singular but just like the way that they choose to shoot them that dirt bike scene you're watching Barry drive past all these cars, just hearing like the radio kind of go by and you're just moving with him through it. And it just feels like I, I hadn't seen a scene shot specifically in that way or, or with that intention or even like Barry on the beach, like in this, in that like afterlife, like yeah. almost like dying type world. Like no, shows don't really, it doesn't feel like shows kind of go to that place in the same way. Like there's something elevated about it. And so I just was really impressed with that. Um, it definitely was a tougher hang this season. Like you said, super dark. The emotions are incredibly, incredibly raw. And um, I think it makes sense for a show that is really, I, I think, trying to explore what these characters would actually be going through or feeling and, and what they're really like if they were in these situations. But it definitely made it a little bit less fun. And I think that uh, it, it's hard to kind of grapple, like, if the if a show is not as much fun to be with, does that mean it's not as good of a show? Or does it just mean that maybe the the mm. aim of the, the creators has changed a bit? Yeah, I think that's what it is. They def uh, Bill Hader, to his credit, just really taking control of the creative juices of this show even more. Uh, 
you know, directing most of the season. He's going to direct all of season four for HBO. You know, when that when that comes, he said they're still in the in the script phase of season four because they've actually changed what uh, it's going to be. I remember at one point he's they they had said that season four had been written during the pandemic because this show was COVID delayed with the production. Well, mm-hmm. it seems they kind of switched up what they want to do, which I think speaks to uh, the interest kind of evolving through the course of season three, which is definitely cool for a show uh, because I think the show can get away with it because you have these core characters that are, of course, excellent portrayals, but also just flushed out in, I think, a, a meaningful but also kind of unsurprising way when like major things happen to them. And season three, like you said, kind of getting a little more existential with this kind of afterlife beach land where Barry can see his past victims and stuff. It's definitely thought-provoking. Um, you know, I, I, I also I enjoyed the uh, the stuff with Banshee, the streaming service, and the obvious but still poignant comments about being slave to the algorithm in terms of content decisions and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's the strongest uh, NoHo Hank season. You know, um, Hank kind of goes on a pretty simple, straightforward journey. This time around, because it's darker, you don't get as much of Anthony Kerrigan's humor, which was often the lightest part of the series. So that was clearly a choice. So kind of curious to see, like, how they keep Hank on the show in season four, because his uh, connection to Barry and uh, and everyone else is pretty tangential at best, obviously, after what's happened with all the Bolivian characters and then the Chechens and everything. So uh, TBD there. Um, but yeah, I mean... You obviously know that this Barry. I don't think Barry is going to spend all of season four in jail, right? And he's going to see <laughs> Sally again, even though she left. You know, so I, I, I don't even know like know how to like, theorize about the future of the show, though, because like there's kind of no point, you know, because like there's no way you can get it right. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard. I agree. I think it's hard to think about what the show is going to become because it, it leaves off at a point where it's like, well, I don't know how Barry could not be in jail, you know, all next season. And they, it's pretty clear he was about to at least attempt murder. If, and if it seems like they can prove a few others. Um, but there's another, like it, this show has kind of reached like master of none, like, er, like territory mm-hmm. for me in a sense where it's like the show could literally be anything. I, I honestly thought, especially like episode six and seven, you know, Barry has the, the chase on the dirt bikes and it feels like, feels like those are the only four people in the world, right? Like it feels like those dirt bike people chasing him and Barry and the guy shooting at them from the car, the only four people in this, in the actual world, because you don't see any people get out of their car. You don't see any people get hit by bullets, even though this guy is just shooting like an AR 15 into this (laughs) line of cars. And it felt almost like surreal to me. And then you actually have episode seven where, like you said, he's having this existential almost about to die experience where he sees all his victims. And it feels like they could very much kind of just go into this like dream world. I mean, even some of the stuff with Fuchs this season where, you know, he meets like the love of his life and chooses, you know, to go back towards this awful existence that he has where, you know, and giving up this potential life of happiness feels almost like, I, I was questioning if anything we were seeing was actually real or just like mm. like a dreamscape for some of these characters, which I, I don't expect them to do. I think that would be really, really 
uh, hard to swallow if basically they're like, yeah, all of season three was just like them all daydreaming or something like that. You know, Sally got all this, was just dreaming about what would happen if she got all this fame and lost it and Natalie then stole it from her or something like that. Um, but I definitely feel like they could take the show in a lot of different directions. And it's kind of nice to be in this space because it, you know, it, it's nice to be surprised by television at times. So I wanted to ask you, because we, we had a few different storylines. Like you mentioned, the NoHo Hank, I think, storyline was was not my favorite of the season, although I think there were definitely some really strong moments. Um, I think specifically the end of the season when he saves Cristobal, Cristobal but you know, can tell that he's just like not the same person anymore. Um, I think the scene where uh, Cristobal's wife comes and extracts him and NoHo Hank's hiding in the closet, I think that's a really like devastating uh, scene to watch but I think really really well acted um, but we also get Fuchs who's kind of sidelined for a while and then kind of comes back into the fold you know, some of the stuff like yes <laughs> that, that that's great Steven Root is so good and like eating that up it's just really fantastic obviously you get uh, Henry Winkler as, as Cousineau and, and you know developing the show and kind of coming to grips with who he was as a person in the past mm-hmm. And I mean, Sarah Goldberg, I think, was Sally and the stuff with her and DRC Corden and right. stuff. There, there's a lot of really good scene stuff. is like crazy in the elevator. Yeah, like, that was a wild oh, scene. My God. I, I felt like that whole arc, like uh, Sally's arc this season, was probably my favorite. You know, not only seeing her like actually like developing the show and kind of how like this like new fame was really exacerbating some of the more awful aspects of her personality and her person, but like the way that they shot her, like as she was show running, like moving through, talking to people, directing, moving from one set to the next. I thought that was beautiful. Really, like you said, loved the commentary on like the algorithm and like how quickly like a successful show like that has potential can just kind of be washed away if the algorithm doesn't think it's a good idea. To so then her downfall, which is just like, <laughs> man, Sarah Goldberg had probably two of the most like full emotional outbursts of the season and just crush them both the elevator scene and in the final episode with with hater but uh, out of these like storylines kind of going around around barry which ones were the ones you found yourself enjoying the most honestly i like some of the stuff in the beginning where like sally slowly comes to grips with the fact that her relationship with barry is very toxic and like you mm-hmm. know shot at elsie fisher in a supporting role kind of her character kind of showing yeah. sally like yo, that's not good that that's what's going on between the two of you, right? Yeah. And then you have that scene where Barry basically comes up, just kind of offers up this his ability to completely ruin this person's life and manipulate their psyche by fucking with them in their home and sneaking in their house and killing their dog and doing all this shit to them. And it completely disturbs her. And like, that, that's the end. And then when Sally's at her absolute lowest, having lost everything professionally, she like wants him to go back to that. It's like this amazing like circle moment. But then at the end, she she still leaves. She she has to be giving up. I think that that's what we're supposed to need. She's like leaving Hollywood, right? She's like going home kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree. I think that's that's really well done. Um, man, I I I love. The hater's delivery when he's like no 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 it's okay you know what what we're just gonna do like some like slight psychological like terrorism on her like well i'm just gonna go in i'm gonna like 
replace her dog with like a slightly different dog. I'm just gonna like move her furniture like three inches to the left and like until she thinks she's going insane, you know, like and so he like says it so casually, nonchalant, delivery is so perfect. Um I thought that was really great. Um I definitely liked the uh stuff going on with um Robert Wisdom's character as um yeah Cousineau's, uh ex girlfriend's dad. Um, oh, yes. or deceased girlfriend's dad i thought right. that stuff was really really interesting um and uh jim, his name was jim so jim moss i thought that moss, character yes. was just so awesome and intimidating and you know shout out to Rob, robert wisdom as uh one of my favorite second half of the wire characters and <laughs> bunny i think he's he's fantastic um and that scene between him and Winker, Winkler in the final episode where he's just like screaming like, did you love my daughter? Did Barry love my daughter? Like that was just like really, really, really um, moving. And I think Winkler crushes that scene as well. Um, so I really like that stuff. The the stuff with Winkler I mean, and Kusino, did you like where that went and him kind of like grappling with his past in that sense? Yeah, well, early on, I wasn't really sure what, what we could possibly where we could possibly go because it, it comes to the point where you have this ensemble and then like the story beats just don't make sense together anymore but then they did a really good job of how first barry and then gene want to like forgive the other over what's happened mm-hmm. and that kind of like push pull between the relationship i thought was pretty interesting and yeah i thought that was that was a, that was a cool direction to have like gene actually like reclaim his former glory as best he could in his current state and like you meanwhile you have his uh the, the guy who plays his agent is just so funny like suggesting adjectives and like and trying to like come up with compliments like uh, no perfect so yeah i thought that, I thought that the gene stuff was pretty good and then the way it happens at the end where he completely uh dupes barry into getting himself yeah. arrested like perfect yeah, I thought that was a really perfect ending for Gina for this season. Yeah, and Fred Milamedes is uh, uh agent is just fantastic. I also liked the stuff with uh Laura San Giacomo as Annie and like how uh Cousineau basically like is trying to like make it up to her and prove he's not a bad person and be like, I didn't I don't remember ruining your career. Like I I'm gonna give you all these opportunity now to direct my new show and like we're gonna do your play on this other show that I'm developing. And mm-hmm. uh her reaction when she's like directing for the first time in like 30 years she's like i have no idea what the fuck i'm doing like i i just thought that was hilarious and so realistic like i it really just made me laugh um yeah i mean it, anything else from the season that you really wanted to touch on or that stood out to you no i don't think so you know like i said like honestly like i think it's my least favorite of the three seasons hmm. just because I, I think i enjoyed watching it less doesn't make it any less good though yeah that's i think that that's the takeaway is this is the least fun season of barry but i think it might be the strongest from like a story and like actual actual production standpoint so uh barry is a show that i think everybody has to be watching please catch up on it but let's move forward and to finish up this podcast with dinosaurs jurassic world dominion dave i didn't watch the the last jurassic world movie so catching up on this i I was in for some some surprises man um and not not in the best way this this is a movie that is getting panned critically i think it's sitting at like 30 percent rotten tomatoes but it made quite a bit of money this weekend Uh, a lot of people came out to see it 
And so um, I think the, the Jurassic franchise still going strong. But man, where did this movie go wrong? Well, you know, I think you just have to kind of grapple with what the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World franchise is. As you said, making a lot of money. It's the second highest grossing Universal Pictures franchise behind Fast and Furious. And it's made less movies than that franchise has. You know, Jurassic Park, obviously, Stone Cold classic, Steven Spielberg, Michael Crichton adaptation. Reputation speaks for itself as an amazing popcorn movie, a paragon of practical effects meets CGI for its time. You know, still amazing use of animatronics. Like, people know about Jurassic Park, right? I think it's a movie really kids get shown eventually like it's really uh, kept on in the consciousness right but you know after that the lost world definitely not what people expected also spielberg also Crichton adaptation and then from there jurassic park 3 which i actually have fond memories of seeing jurassic park 3 in theaters back in 2000 2001 2002 whenever that was i was on vacation i remember it pretty well honestly and I remember liking it at the time but you know jurassic park Three, The Lost World, as well as all these Jurassic World movies, none of them have been beloved by critics. They've just been broadly popular and financially successful. So I think it's just one of those things where kind of like, I don't know, kind of like the Transformers movies, like people go to these movies to see dinosaurs. So like the reviews kind of don't matter to the target audience for these films. Now I think watching Jurassic World Dominion without having some prior knowledge of what happens in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, as you said, uh, can present some challenges from understanding pieces of the plot. You know, you have to know or you'll quickly be uh, quickly learn that the dinosaurs are out in the world in Start of Dominion, because that's what happens at the end of Fallen Kingdom. And there's a, a specific character that's introduced towards the end of Fallen Kingdom that play, figures pretty prominently in Dominion. It's a pretty serialized continuation of a story here. But you know, on the other hand, Fallen Kingdom made like $1.3 billion, so I think they're kind of expecting that if you're going to watch Dominion, you probably watch the last one. So honestly, you're, you're probably in a bit of a unique boat. Yeah, I probably am. Um, and I am probably not going to go back and watch Fallen Kingdom after watching this. I think that Dominion, I think Dominion asked some interesting questions, but gets bogged down in just like lazy script writing honestly and um just like uh, shoehorned in nostalgia that just didn't even feel like it really paid off all that much like you know it's 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 not like a bad thing to have sam neil there i just don't really know why he was there you know he's just kind of like along for the ride to be like i'm old and i'm lonely and i want to be with laura dern okay like, okay, I guess we yeah. really need another movie. Like, even Chris Pratt in this movie. Like, I get he's, like, the action star. I mean, the guy just, like, he just holds up his hand at a dinosaur, like, ten times in the movie. And that's kind of it. He, I guess he gets, like, one fight scene. And he gets to run around. But, like, I don't really know what he's doing here. Like, right. I don't well, really know what the movie's well, totally Like I to said, they're, they're the, quote, stars of the past movies and the current movies, respectively. They're not the stars of the Jurassic franchise. Again, the stars are watching the dinosaurs. So right. it, it's kind of, kind of whatever, you know, it's like Chris Pratt's Owen Grady. It, it's not his best character. It's not really Chris Pratt's fault. Just the character hasn't had a whole lot to really do. And he hasn't really been that fleshed out over the course of three films. It is what it is. 
So in that sense, I think Pratt's good enough for what this character needs. You know, I don't think he has uh, crackling chemistry with Bryce Dallas Howard, but again, it's not a relationship that they put any time into fostering. So like, you don't really have to care. Right. I guess it's like, um, you know, I, I, I just think about like why the first Jurassic Park really worked and, you know, it, coming at a time when they had much less CGI, um, I think telling this story, but having the practical effects that they had, you know, that first time you like, see the landscape and you see all the dinosaurs it's really like kind of just like mm. breathtaking and very moving you have this john williams score that is just like all like top top notch and you're like this is incredible and i don't even think the dinosaur scenes in this movie really like blew me away that much like there's some some cool you know i think like dinosaurs that have you know, mutated or uh, evolved and, and they have different powers and that that's kind of interesting to think about but i i just didn't even feel like like that was really as gripping as some of the stuff like in the first Jurassic World when they have that like T-Rex who can do all the different things I found the Indominus that Rex be, yeah <laughs> Indominus Rex I found that to be a lot more interesting than some of the like mutated or evolved dinosaurs in this movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so and that's something they I think to like and like Colin Trevorrow of course came back for Dominion of shepherding in world still being involved with Fallen Kingdom but not directing it uh, his first film since he uh, was fired from Star Wars Episode Nine, And I think to Trevor's credit, he's at least attempted to like throw in some new ideas to this because you can't keep doing Jurassic movies if you don't stop making Jurassic Park 1 all over again. You just can't keep doing that. You have to find something new. So they think they've tried to like introduce, you know, like, these like hybrid, like built in a lab dinosaurs with DNA splicing and stuff like that. They've tried stuff like that. In this movie, you know, we have this biosyn company who are kind of like an amalgamation of like Facebook and Monsanto and all these other tech things. And, you know, I think there's some familiar tropes, but still kind of interesting ideas there in terms of like if you're going to throw some new flavor into like the Jurassic stuff. I thought it was pretty solid. I think the, the issue, though, is like you said, is like the, sh- the movie Dominion is trying to be a lot of things at once. I mean, the first first hour and a hour hour plus is like so many different genres of movie all at once. It's like it's like an Indiana Jones movie at the end. It's an action thriller when they're in Malta. I liked it the most once we finally got to Biosyn, once we finally got to Italy and we're around like the dinosaurs in a more conventional format that you know, which is like their sanctuary where they live, like the basically the new version of Jurassic Park here. I thought that was like the most interesting here. But the nostalgia stuff's interesting to me because bringing back Sam Neill and Laura Dern and bringing back Goldblum at like one scene in Fallen Kingdom, it's like, I like seeing all of them. It's nice to see them. They're not given much of anything to do, although I thought Goldblum definitely made the most of his lines just being oh, yeah. like, classic like hashtag jeff goldblum like the complete he's just being the meme at this point but i really liked it i thought he's just super funny still uh but did you realize i did not realize this until after the fact that our bad guy here dodgson the head of uh the head of biosyn did you realize that guy was in the first jurassic park because i didn't remember that this is the guy who pays wayne knight the money to steal the embryos in jurassic park one 
You know, remember the scene of Wayne Knight? They're on the beach, and he's like, we got Dodson! We got Dodson! This is memorable, like, Wayne Knight being himself. It's, like, super funny. That's the no, guy who is it. now our Steve Jobs in Dominion. I was like, no fucking way anyone remembers yeah, that. Yeah, well, I, I, I realized that after I, I uh, read a review on this and they pointed that out and I was like, oh yeah, you know, he, he did look kind of familiar, but like, you know, kind of just generic bad guy. Uh, I, I do love that he, <laughs> I do love that he named um, his company Biosyn, which is just like the most like on the nose, like evil corporation name ever <laughs> like fantastic stuff there gold like you, you i just want to go back to goldblum real quick man he's fucking chewing on all these scenes i love when he gets fired by uh the the head guy and he's like before i go i need to give an apology to all of you who have been misled just like the way he like delivers <laughs> it it just feels like you don't know what he's gonna say next and it's just like kind of unhinged but also like very much like not it's it, goldblum is just so so great um yeah, I really like his performance in this. Uh, I, you know, performances I don't know if I liked as much, like Laura Dern. I I feel like she's not really given like a ton to work with, other than like like she's supposed to be the person kind of like propelling things full forward and like super confident, like kind of leading this through. And I and I think she does that, but like I don't know, like I her character in the first one wasn't super memorable, other than like kind of being this like. Uh, motherly figure to these two children um, in this and like I guess she kind of is like the grandmother to like Bryce Dallas Howard and uh, forgetting the, the kid's name um, uh, clone kid yeah whatever her name is yeah yeah <laughs> so it's just like I guess she just kind of like replicates that role but like kind of thankless like Laura Dern didn't need to come back for this I don't know right well and uh, that's kind of the thing it's like the nostalgia play with Jurassic was when Jurassic World came out in 2015 and the movie absolutely crushed at the box office because it was a very familiar return to the franchise just like the way Force Awakened was a very familiar exactly. return to the franchise there's not strong nostalgia for Sam Neill and Goldblum and Laura Dern the way there was for like Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, just not the same level of audience relationship to the character. Cause again, audience relationship with Jurassic franchises to the dinosaurs and the spectacle first. So yeah. it's not quite as clean as like a thing. Although, you know, thinking about this, it's kind of interesting to think about like fallen kingdom being like the last Jedi of, Jura of the Jurassic world movies where like they actually tried to do something different and I, I love The Last Jedi. I didn't love Fallen Kingdom. I actually like it less than Dominion because Fallen Kingdom just does this. It becomes like a haunted house movie at the at the the second half, which is a cool thing to try and twist and make something new about Jurassic. It just actually wasn't that good. That was the issue. And now Dominion is kind of like your Rise of Skywalker, Mia Culpa, end of the trilogy thing, where you try and please everyone, and thus don't actually please anyone. It, it, it's kind of interesting to think about this parallel here, but. On the other hand, like they've they've written themselves into such a corner with like these movies, and like I feel like what Universal? Why would they stop making these movies? These movies make so much fucking money. They're so successful, but from a plot perspective, the Jurassic Park Jurassic World story is that book is closed. Like you have to completely reboot the shit out of this now. Well, you know, I I'm. I'm not so sure. I feel like the introduction of Demanda Wa uh sorry, Dewanda Wise and yeah. Mamadou Afi feels like, you know, kind of placing these characters who could take the helm and, you know, do something a little bit different, uh, as like heads of the franchise moving forward, obviously with 
uh, Isabella's sermon is Maisie. That was the character's name. Uh, the the clone girl who seems like she's kind of being put at the center of this. Yeah. But like, yeah, it, it feels like it could also be the end of it. But I don't know. Like it, to reboot this again, really? <sighs> you know, maybe know. how many times can you do this? Well, because well, because it's like it wasn't a true reboot in the sense it was a continuation, right? And like they true. ended it with the original characters here for what for what that's worth, as we've said. But maybe now we're, you're you're kind of set up to make like a another Transformers comparison, like make make a Bumblebee, make a smaller scale, more character story with just a few dinosaurs. You know, I wonder if that's a fit for this franchise. I don't know. Um, but I think generally, like uncheck science and corporate greed, familiar themes to this franchise and, and films in general, but like still appealing stuff like to see in blockbusters. Like I, I, I like like generally like the, these plots, as dumb as they are, like I still find them entertaining. I, I I enjoyed Dominion despite it being super long and super dumb. Like, like that's kind of why I'm there. So, did you like the dinosaurs as, as much in this one? Yeah, I think that's kind of an issue, right? There's, I think part of it's the CG. Like you just don't have a, a like a connection to dinosaurs as much this time. The whole like blue and the raptor stuff has never been my favorite thing with Jurassic World. And, like, I just don't, like, so some of the set pieces I've enjoyed, but I feel like they kind of, like, build up a lot of this stuff with, like, these big fights and, like, the T-Rex being, like, the anti-hero, almost kind of saving the day by f- fucking up Indominus Rex or Gigantosaurus or whatever it is each time, you know? It's, like, I, I think it's just, like, when you kind of build up to these, like, dinosaur fights where it's these two non-sentient CGI things fighting each other, and our human characters like watching on the side and trying not to die. It's just not as compelling as they hope it is, despite yeah. it being visually impressive. Yeah, like I feel like like you think about like this thing about the Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park Free, which is like not a beloved dinosaur per se, but like that just had like a real like terror to it, you know? It's like I don't know what it is, but I feel like because like the environments are so CG heavy, it just doesn't quite hit the same, even though it looks good. Like I, I thought like Jurassic World One probably did the best with these CG dinosaurs the most. But yeah. yeah. Something about Dominion is just like it it's it's fine, you know. I think maybe it'd be better if we didn't have such a heavy like locust theme in Dominion, which on yeah. itself was like a twist, you know, like this evil company trying to ravage the world's food supplies to then increase their market share it's like huh not a bad thought but kind of doesn't feel like it fits in a jurassic world movie you know uh i don't know like like did you did you have a connection to these dinosaurs that much no i I think the one i had the most connection to was blue because you you see him in the first movie and there's like a real connection between him and own greedy in that first movie mm-hmm. uh he might be in the second one i didn't watch one like i said but like yeah obviously one. something about a uh a mother or I, I guess a father i don't know blue's gender yeah asexually has a child that's taken from them i, I think that's like yeah. compelling and like that life that, finds a way at the end yeah at that end when they they return blue's baby to them and Blue turns around, gives like the little look, and the baby gives a little look. Oh man, that's that's just like good stuff. Like I feel connected to that. I think you said it right. The first Jurassic World they did a really good job with these CGI uh, 
dinosaurs. I think like that scene where and and Andromedus Rex is chasing them in the little like uh, glass spheres that they're yeah. like roaming around. That's a, That's great like a really yeah really gripping really terrifying scene super well like done um what uh, you know action wise there's the scene where like they're looking for the kids and Owen grady comes over the mountain and he sees all the all the dinosaurs that have been killed by andromedus and you're like oh fuck like, this is really sad you know like it kind of reminds you when you see like the the triceratops dying in the first one like you yeah. feel really like gutted it just you, you don't connect to any of these scenes in the same way like you have that like underwater dinosaur which i just was like yeah, okay, the like, yeah. yeah like what what's going on here you know you get some callbacks to some things like you get the raptor who has like the the wings on the side of his face yeah, feathers kills accurate the, they finally put feathers, feathers in the movies Fi- yeah finally i was like i was pretty i was pretty happy with that <laughs> But we, we, we've know, known dinosaurs uh, had feathers since like 1995, like right after the first yeah. one came out, and they took this long to make it into the movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's just like hard, I think, to connect. And you think about also how dark this movie is. A lot of the action, especially near the end, takes place at night. And in the first movie, you kind of needed that, right? Because a lot of these practical effects, you kind of needed the darkness to like create a sense of reality and to cover up some of the. The, cr- yeah. the seams it's heavy filtering some of those scenes yeah. yeah you don't need that with cgi so there's something lost i think when you're in the dark the whole time and like you said you're it pans over to them watching this one mutated dinosaur fight a t-rex and then this like even more mutated dinosaur comes in and they team up to kill it together you know t-rex bites his neck and throws him and they like got claws him in the neck it's yeah. just like <laughs> There's there's nothing to that to me. I'm just like okay, like cool. <laughs> I don't know. It, it was it was kind of funny. I don't know. It's uh, it really is going for something, and I just feel like they had seeds of things that really would be interesting to explore, and they just never really like hammered any of it home. Well. Right. So. Like a, a lot's been made of like when Fallen Kingdom starts, like the dinosaurs are out in the wild and they're reproducing, and we just have to live with it. It's like no, they don't actually grapple with that idea, which would have been a really radical new idea for this franchise having like dinosaurs out in the world and at the end of the day the stuff i liked the most is when we got most traditional in the second half and we got to effectively the new version of jurassic park you know but like Mm -hmm. in malta when we're kind of doing like an action movie and we see like this underground uh like black market uh marketplace uh bazaar for dinosaur sales and stuff it's like huh the seediness of this is is interesting. It's appealing, right? And we get a Omar C's character from the first Jurassic World pops up. Then it's like, you know, it's like there's something there, but they like they just don't have the time to dedicate to this. I kind of wish we just didn't do this at all and went back to spend more time at Biosyn, you know, at least commit. But it's kind of all these things at once. Like Dewanda Wise, I thought she was really great, but the problem is like she's basically in a completely different movie half the time because of what she has to do so like, she's like such in the action mold you know so it's just kind of a weird amount amalgamation in this movie and like he has so much time spent with like owen and uh what's it claire owen and claire's like relationship and taking care of the clone kid and it's like man we're just kind of dragging our feet with this can we like speed things up can we like get to the dinos you know it's like yeah because like like seeing seeing blue out back you know with, with blue's kid doing nothing but just kind of being there it's like like i don't know like i feel like it starts kind of slow and then we 
have this complete interstitial in the middle. It's it's kind of a lot of things at once. It, it's a it's a it's a weird one. Yeah, I mean it, the ending, like you said, it tried to be Jurassic Park again, but it tried to be like an Indiana Jones movie in the middle, and you know, family like threw lines in there. It just uh, it didn't really work for me. Um, I I did I was happy to see our guy Omar Sy. Like you, I think you had mentioned before, like getting a a nice look with uh alongside Chris Pratt, which I think is uh exciting. I think there's some I think there's some things that you can go in just kind of like enjoy. But overall, I don't know. I felt like the movie's kind of a mess. And uh, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Probably not a movie we're going to be talking about much past today. But you, so you think the franchise moves in total reboot mode, or like go smaller scale? It's a great question. You know, I mean, it's probably not advisable to go smaller because people show up to these movies because they're big, All right? But I mean, you just have to find a way to continue this. Fr- franchise in a way that's not just keeping the park stuff because like the thing about jurassic world which was so cool is like you have to see for a fleeting moment what it would have been like if jurassic park opened and was successful and super popular and like that stuff's like super cool i love that shit you know and then things inevitably go wrong like it's a great formula but i just don't think we can keep doing that formula all and over again and they've made it pretty clear that dominion is the end of like this serialized story so you at least have to reboot it from a plot perspective, even if you kind of just pick things up. I don't know. You know, I think Fallen Kingdom was an attempt to do something very different. I just don't, don't didn't think they did it well enough. Does that mean you don't try something different ever again? I don't know. But, I mean, these movies are way too successful. Universal should keep making these because these bankrolled so many other things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, have, I have no idea where they go from here. I, I'm, I'm interested what what Pratt wants to do. And you, you said before, you don't think this is Pratt's best role. I was wondering, what do you think is Chris Pratt's best role? I mean, it's gotta be guardians, right? Like Star Wars, I feel like is the best use of his talents to this point. You know, he never became Indiana Jones, long rumored back in the day, you know, he was never Nathan Drake. Uh, You had Jurassic and guardians like blowing up around the same time. And that's what kind of propelled him into the, into the Chris Wars, into the A-list and, said some other stuff here and there some more one-off stuff but you know i mean apologies to the lego movie but i feel like i feel like it's guardians kind of easily right yeah it's gotta be but lego movie is probably number two yeah i think lego movie's gotta be number two that that's actually a really good call chris, uh, chris wars update uh give me your your ranking i mean it's pine season bro it's been pine season go check that out on youtube.com plus nostalgia pod chris pine the best chris chris evans not doing too bad in the post uh post captain america life and Hemsworth coming up uh this week in spiderhead and then thor 4 too so chris wars are hot yeah i actually think it might might be hemsworth right now i mean the thor coming up i mean evans doesn't really have uh does does he have a new show out he has the gray so, man right? coming out soon with Ryan oh, Gosling, the is. huge yeah. blockbuster yeah, for yeah. Netflix. All right, well, and he, you and know he had what? Actually, out, of June, June is going to be uh, spicing up the Chris Wars a little bit. I think it's Pratt is is definitely last, like yeah. no doubt. He was last when we talked about it last year. <laughs> he, he he's actually barely hanging on at this point. So Chris Chris Wars might be a three three horse race from now on. But <laughs> anyways, uh, drop your thoughts on Jurassic. Uh, World Dominion below. And uh, Dave, what should the people be talking about for next week? 
Yeah, so Pixar is going back to the movie theater. First time since Onward came out, right as the pandemic started. Late year. Chris Evans, back in the new thing. Yeah. Uh, the real Buzz Lightyear. So we'll see about that. Uh, also on streaming with Grimms Hemsworth, you have Spiderhead on Netflix with Miles Teller as well. Directed by Joseph Kaczynski, the director of Top Gun Maverick. Very exciting. Also a uh, appealing indie movie out of Sundance, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which is uh, beyond Apple. That was a hit earlier this year. And on the music front, of course, Joey Badass, long-awaited uh, third album, finally here. Perfume Genius, back with a new record. Logic, back with a new record. Second post-retirement album, this guy. Yeah, some good stuff there. Logic is the uh, most active retired artist of all time at this point. <laughs> So stupid. Anyways, uh, hit that subscribe at youtube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Follow us at NostalgiaPod on Twitter. And uh, give us a rating on whatever platform you listen to. It really helps. Uh, we appreciate you all. Catch you next week. Yeah.